Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, it's your flying dog dragon wizard, Holden McNeely. And it is I, your strong-handed rock-biter bruiser. These hands look strong. Yes, they look strong, Jay. But I'm a big, dumb rock man with clinical <laughs> depression. Yes, you are a rock man with clinical depression, Jake. I thought that nothing would take me, but then... I took Zoloft, <laughs> and now, you know, it's easier to get out of bed. And, uh, honestly, quite frankly, it's a uh, it's shame that it's been stigmatized. Zoloft. Try it today. <laughs> this episode of Worst in the Bruiser is brought to you by Zoloft. It <laughs> solves all your problems. It solves enough of your problems. <laughs> it solves most of them. get you to a long flight. <laughs> what? I don't know. I don't even know what Zoloft does. Are you talking? You're living in a world where, like, kids are grinding Zoloft like they yeah, were bars dude. of Xan. Like, there's Sprinkling Instagram rappers talking about that SSRI life. <laughs> we are tackling uh maybe the most quintessentially 80s fantasy movies of all time yeah i and, mean look i it, and and we there are others we're gonna do eventually i gave jake actually a choice of three and i love your reason why i said because these, these are all gonna be wizard of the Bruiser episodes at some point princess bride mm-hmm. which fuck you for not letting me talk about andre the giant this week what 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 ha- did he come back from the grave? No, I just wanted and to, bigger I, than ever. I just wanted to talk about him. That we would have gotten to do that with Princess Bride, uh, Labyrinth, mm-hmm. of course, right? But we already did Henson. Makes sense, mm-hmm. right? But you told me it's the 35th anniversary of Neverending Story, and Neverending Story is one that I've mentioned to you multiple times as something to cover. I'm not even sure why, other than it does what children's content does that I like the most, which is make it all dark and fucked up and weird for for kids. No, no. I'm saying this is like a level of fucked up in this that like <laughs> we have since moved on. Yeah. And that we have since like kind of uh, uh, agreed was weird and bad. Right. But having done research, like it opened my eyes because uh, as a kid, this movie was an inscrutable mess of just deformed creatures and bizarre like uh, existential threats uh-huh. and nonsensical annoying child acting uh-huh. yeah <laughs> it is it is a menagerie of strangeness it uh, is it is there even though i don't know why this is true but it feels incredibly german now that i know that it's german it's very german it is like i forgot just how early you know oh by the way spoiler alert you bitches 
It's fucking the horse dies so early. Way earlier than I remember. Way earlier. I thought that was like the last, you know, like the last trial. Before but you the- forget like the horse, Falcor is like, you know, in so much of the movie and he doesn't even get- Hey, it's me, better horse. Exactly. I talk and grant wishes. Yay, <laughs> better horse. Also, by the way, this is my impression of the entire movie. Atreyu, Falcor, <laughs> Atreyu. Falcor! Artex! That yeah. poor... That kid. That kid that played Atreyu got the shit kicked out of he him. He got the shit kicked out of him and then was besmeared... His name was smeared afterwards by the people who made it, calling him, you know, difficult to work with. He's a child! He's... We'll, okay, we'll get into He's that. He's a child, and by the way, they're like, "Oh, Bastion was so easy to work with. He was so good. He's oh, he had to do You made this other kid fucking fly out of trees, and oh, dear God, <laughs> like, he almost died twice. He almost died twice, and you're calling him a, an a asshole. A robot wolf almost took the fucking eyes out of his socket, <laughs> and they called him a pain in the ass. We'll get into all of that, but first, before we even get into that, um, what I said referred to Jake as the hidden, true hidden gem of deciding to do what I. I thought it was more going to be about the movie, but that has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, this book and and where all of this came from. One of my favorite things, by the way, is that the whole never-ending story part of never-ending story is not in any of the movies. Yes, like the, well, in a way, in a way it is, in a but way it is, in isn't. a way that completely kneecaps, it's completely different from what. And I'm talking about the repeating mm-hmm. uh, thing about the book that happens, the story repeating itself until Bastion, you know, jumps into it. Uh, jumps into the book um, that that is just not in any of it that is totally why it's called The NeverEnding Story and it's so stupid to me but um, there you go this is actually the story I didn't even realize this but this is definitely another one of those cases of a great work of literature being like kind of horribly bastardized <laughs> but I didn't give a shit because I was eight and it was on <laughs> Your and your mom taped it off HBO yes. during the free preview weekend. Yes, exactly. And it just it, nothing else looked like it and in the it entire world. Always put me in a weird mood. Not as bad as Neverending Story Two, which we'll talk about later. That movie put me in a, like a bad mood when mm. I would watch. It's kind of like playing a bad like NES game or SNES game. You, you, just the music and the look of it. You can't even put your finger on it, but it just puts you in a shitty mood. On a Saturday afternoon when you're just trying to, like, entertain yourself, but you're bored out of your mind because you're fucking eight. Um, Another thing that, like, really kind of, like, cracked open this topic for me was that um, this is, like, uh, this past uh, holiday break, uh, Marie and I, we, like, just dove into the Netflix Choose Your Own Adventure movie, The Bandersnatch. Oh, yeah, I want to check that out. It's very good. It's very meta. It's very interesting. And, like... Back during the uh, 70s and 80s, like, NeverEnding Story was doing this kind of shit. Yeah. And, like, that kind of meta turn where, like, the the the, uh, the the relationship between viewer and reader and actor and movie and, like, the way that it folded in on itself yes. and became a commentary on the act of consuming media, like, it's it's was way ahead of its time and kind of brilliant. And, and it was a technique used a lot by the German author Michael N. Um, is that end e n d e? I in my head I was just Michael Indy. <laughs> yes. All right. So that's how I'll be pronouncing it for the rest. Oh, of you're talking about the author of the Undlichgeschichte. Jake will be doing various uh, German accents this week, but he says he's going to try to stay out of uh, 
Giger territory, but I say Die Unlichtgeistig. Jake, I would actually specifically. I actually specifically want uh, for Giger to maybe make an appearance at some point and give his review of the film. Oh, I think no, I no, no, no. It's, it. it's, uh, we'll, we'll get, we'll get to the Germans. <laughs> we'll get to the Germans. So, German Mike Michael and. Uh, he was actually had an interesting upbringing. He's the child to a surrealist painter named Edgar Ind, and um, also to uh, his mother, who is a psychiatrist. And he was always has always been fascinated with Japanese culture. Big time weep. Big time weep since he was a little kid. And he was able to really get into that, especially because at six, his family moved to this artist quarter of uh, Schwabing, which is a borough in the northern part of Munich, which has uh, was a famous bohemian quarter. So we're talking about like, this is like, you know, the, I don't want to say the Williamsburg of uh, Munich during this time, uh, pre-Nazi Germany, but it sort of was, I guess, mm-hmm. more bohemian though, right? More interesting and I cool. mean, it's German artists and it's literally bohemia. Yeah, it's literally bohemia. Um, and his father was incredibly affected by the onslaught of the Nazi party. Uh, they oh yeah, it turns in. out it was a bad time to have weird surrealist art in the time where fascists were trying to do like, no, there's no imagination and decay and... Uh, craziness. Uh, we are all perfect and art is representational and right. get in line, get a gun and fucking fight for your motherland. It is so Deutschland, funny how like traditionally evil the Nazi party is that they're like, you can't even look at a pretty picture. No, you can't look at an ugly picture. <laughs> oh, ah, yes. For too long, things have been ugly. We're going to make things pretty. Right. Again. Perfect. Again. Yeah. Right. Make things perfect again. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Hearing that statement political we just got political we just got political. nazis are bad don't be a nazi i mean um, sometimes if you're feeling down you're like man i wish i could like i feel like if i if i became a nazi i like would get better clothes or whatever N- no no it's, no, it's a common mistake work. just like get some exercise and j- take that from a Je- jewish man <laughs> <laughs> oh like a cop in a backwards baseball cap like, <laughs> hey kids you know what's not cool? Putting me specifically in a camp that's run by the government. <laughs> a rip, rip, rap. <laughs> so, yes, the Nazi party came and shut down his father's work. His father had to work in secret. Uh, and and he he has a vivid remembrance of this time. And this is really, I think, the how we really can insert the darker tones of his work uh, in, into what would later become the never-ending story. Uh, you know, he remembers his first air raid vividly. He saw it at the age of 12. And then later he was uh, affected by the 1943 Hamburg bombing. He was visiting a relative, and they had to send him back to his family because, oh, surprise, this giant crazy bombing happened. Um, uh, he, he also, at this time, though, uh, obviously he needs to escape, right, mm-hmm. and get away from these things. And that's where a great interest in poetry uh, came to him. And at the same time, he had to fight really hard. He could only study certain things. It was banned at the time. Uh, so if you could only imagine, poetry was cigarettes, <laughs> you know, at the time. Like that secret dirty thing you're doing, going and reading uh, fucking sonnets. So, yeah, he had to really kind of... Uh, dig to find stuff and 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 deal with an awful situation with the Nazis just showing up and just being like, uh oh, did the fucking party poopers just arrive? <laughs> execution, execution. That's how I see it. In my that's got to be fun. Where you're like, like, oh no, the Nazis are bad, but don't worry, the Americans are coming to say, oh shit, they just <laughs> lit my town on fire. Yes, exactly. 
that's not that's not helping. Just not a good way to deal with it. I read a Kurt Vonnegut book or two. I'm pretty sure war's rad. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So he uh, ends up getting drafted at one point into the Nazi Party's militia, the Volkstrom, and he, being an absolute badass, rips up his papers and joins a Bavarian resistance movement founded to sabotage the SS's declared intention to defend Munich until, and I quote, the bitter end. So this guy rules. (laughs) That is incredible. I mean, could you imagine? And that's like at the height, you know what I mean? And he's like... He straight up, that is the most punk rock thing I've ever I, I heard. don't get it. How can he be in a resistance group without Twitter? <laughs> I don't I don't understand. <laughs> That's back when Twitter was a gun. <laughs> Motherfucker. This shit's about to go viral. Shit. <laughs> Michael Ende is the poet child warrior. <laughs> Which was his first book, The Poet Child Warrior. Um <laughs> It's about a, a kid who's really horny. No, no. Um, he uh, he originally wanted to be a dramatist. He wanted to get in the theater. He wanted to be a playwright. He ended up being an actor for a while with the traveling theater. Oh, that, just that was, a just a sure. quick minor detail before sure. he after the war, but before he entered uh, the the career of the of the theater, uh, he got to finish his education at a Waldorf school. Waldorf schools are very hippy dippy, but based in this uh, philosophy called anthroposophy which is very much like kind of based on esoteric Gnostic ideas of like God being part of everything and everything being part of God and the spiritual being connected to your inner consciousness. Mm. And there's a lot of ideas about the nature of reality Mm. and how um, imagination and your conscious mind influences the world outside and within uh, that is incredibly incorporated into the never ending story. Right. In addition to a bunch of his weeb, uh, Japanese philosophy. Yes. Thing. I mean, Falkor. Yeah. This this blew my mind. So Falkor in, is the English version of the character from the book Fukur, ah. which they changed because it's fucker. <laughs> uh, you can't, our child hero can't write fucker the dragon. Yeah, right. He so could, though, and he so should, though. Uh, fucker! <laughs> Atreyu! Um, but Fukur is an abbreviation of the Japanese word Fukuryu, which is a dragon. Ah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. What a big wh- weep. What a nerd. What a yes. <laughs> uh so he's he does a, a lot of traveling theater and it was an absolute grind, but this kind of relates we just did an episode on One Piece and it kind of relates to me in the sense that, you know, his travels in the theater troupe apparently just gave him a good taste of the common man. Much like uh the creator of One Piece he was very much into getting in touch with what common people enjoyed, uh, entertainment-wise. Or in in terms of our lives, he bombed in a bunch of shitty yes, gigs. Yes, he bombed over and over again until he finally started doing the right stuff for Arizona. <laughs> and then he started getting over a little bit better in just Arizona. Mm-hmm. He ends up uh, writing his first novel around this time. After, you know, while he's traveling as an actor, when he gets back, it's called Jim Button. And it's about a talking steam locomotive named Emma, her driver Luke, and Luke's accomplice, Jim Button. And it says, uh, my books are for any child between 80 and 8 years old. And it really seems like, from what I read, he really was into very impulsive writing. It kind of reminds me a little bit of our Tolkien episode in which Tolkien wrote the, you know, in the in the whole lived a hobbit, right? Yeah. Kind of at a spur of the moment. And, and um... That's a lot of how he writes. He just 
he he put a character on a page. The character meets this person. Oh, and now we're going to take him here. Now we're going to take him there. And it really seems to flow for him. And he loves to play that game of what's going to happen next. I don't know, you know. And it's he's very enthusiastic about his writing. And, of course, all children's books. Then he starts working on The NeverEnding Story. Um, and a lot of what he tried to do with a lot of his work was uh, having the reader interact with a story using fantasy to bring light to problems of an increasing technological modern society. Very Lord of the Rings, actually, mm -hmm. uh, which makes a lot of sense during the war when you have these, like, ma machines of death constantly uh, attacking you. So this is something that the movie completely loses track of. Sure, yeah, and that's where we can start talking about that. By the way... Little known secret, uh, Michael Lynn fucking hates the movie. So hates. we're gonna talk about us. Like, I kept finding from funny the, quotes. Uh, everything from the plot to the creative decisions to even like the the art design. Yeah, the, uh, the in the original book, the Southern uh, Oracle uh -huh. is formless. Mm. There is no like uh, there is no sphinxes with rocking tits. Giant fun tits. Like shapely porno tits. <laughs> That, like, the angle is, like, just right when they walk in on him. I was watching it with Marie, and even she is like, Jesus Christ, this is ridiculous. I read the quote from End, which was, The Sphinxes are quite one of the biggest embarrassments of the film. They are full-bosom strippers who sit there in the desert. <laughs> and at first I was like, this guy's insane, you know? And then I went and watched the movie again, and I was like, no, no, no. Those are some, like, giant-ass anime titties. Yeah, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> real like i mean we're open-minded people whatever like haha we're not prudes them anime titties yeah no so he lived through nazi germany which was a state of like unreality where fascism took control of the people and the narrative and literally bent the like changed what became truth uh -huh. for the for the people and a big part of the never-ending story the idea of the nothing and gamork and uh all these the idea of like imagination and creativity being stripped away, uh, the movie does not address, but this is like, this is plot point in the book is what the nothing is, is the erosion of human creativity and freedom. And the Gamork is working alongside what are only known as the manipulators. Ah. Because as things, as uh, imaginary creatures from uh, Fantasia, which is the name of the alternate reality that the most that the book takes place in, as the imaginary creatures get sucked into the nothing, they become lies and untruths in the human world. Yes, and so by destroying creativity, we create basically fake news. <laughs> and uh, Gamork works alongside like the dark forces that wish to like stop human freedom and create a new reality that they can control. And then you have the old thing with the memories thing. And, and okay, so... Oh, yeah. The, me the memory thing. Okay, so this is the half of the book. And even what you just said kind of happens in the second one, but in the weirdest, just, like, bullshitty, twisted way that's not even real. You know, like, creatures coming into the real world kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then also uh, the memory thing, he... Uh, well, first of all, he realizes um, that in a, in a last-ditch effort, the Empress goes to essentially um, save the world in the story by go by like creating the part in the story where he goes and gets the book. Right? Isn't that kind of how it happens? Where the where Bastion goes and gets the book over and over again? 
right? This is this is a mind fuck that yeah. I wish they had done this in the movie. I know how cool would have been. And then they do it in the dumbest fucking way ever in the second one. It's just this weird with the memory eating. Okay, so shit. there's a scene in the book where uh, Bastion, the kid reading the book, Atreyu, the hero in the world of Fantasia in the book, out to save the emperor, the childlike empress, and the childlike empress is like, Bastion is you say my name, like give me a new name, and. Uh, Bastion still doesn't do it because right. he's, he's like, this isn't real. I'm reading a book. Yeah. Uh, so to prove it, and I, I should have tracked down a copy of a book because right. I don't quite understand how this works in the text. Right. She calls forth her like historian and he starts reading off the book that Bastion is reading from page one. Yes. With additional details that only Bastion knows. Yes. And, and so, like, and then it just keeps repeating itself. Every time they get back to the historian in the story, it just starts over again and just keeps going. And Thus being a never-ending story. That's the whole fucking point of the whole fucking book, like, being called that. And I always wondered why that movie was called that because I'm like, how? Other than, I guess it just keeps writing. It writes itself at point. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, reality itself is a never-ending story. Sure, I guess. Or but like, is, if we translate it more accurately from the German... An unending incident. <laughs> and I'm sorry, the thing I was actually meant to say that they do in the dumbest fucking way ever actually happens after this point. When he goes into the story, there's a whole fucking section. He, Bastion goes into the story and he... he um, gets the wishing power. Gets this wishing power, but every wish that he makes ruins, uh, uh, destroy, gets rid of one of his memories in real life, mm -hmm. right? Um, and this is... This just goes and goes and goes until he almost has no memory of anything else. And then he has to, like, give up his memories of his, like, his last memories, which is of, like, his parents. It's, it's down to his parents and his own name. And his own name. And he has to try to give them up because his final wish is the real wish he always wanted, right? Which is to love and something yeah. like that. Yeah, which is, like, true love or something like that. To be capable of love. Right, exactly. Um, so, so that kind of happens in... The second movie, but in this weird ass, just like I'm weird, we're all weird monsters, and I'm this that bird man or whatever. Oh, is, that fucking chicken that dude, awful is fucking guy awful guy who's trying to trick him with this wish machine that is getting rid of his memory. This you know gets rid of his memory, so it's like kind of incorporated, but in the most like it's in there way. So another reason why MD was so mad at the movie is because. I mean, this his never-ending story was a basically a 500-page book. That's longer than Tolkien. That's yeah. like, a, yeah, that's 50 pages longer than Fellowship of the Rings. <sighs> and, you know, it's an important lesson to teach kids to, like, reject, uh, like, a, a false narrative and create within your own anthroposophy, inner worlds, reality, you know, imagination, freedom, good creativity. But also, if you get too sucked into your own inner world, you lose a part of yourself. And you don't become capable of interacting with others. Which is so you have to give up the fantasy in order to love others, in order to like be a part of a family and a community and a society. It, like that's yeah. so the movie's literally the movie ends with like the kid just being like, Yeah, I'm beating up my bullies and dragons are real and I'm like fantasy land forever. Like that's not the lesson of the book. The lesson right. of the book is actually more nuanced. It has balance. Yes. Why am I screaming about this German man's weird child adventure? Because I think he's right in being pissed off about this movie. That we, The whole point of me doing this uh, episode or us doing this episode is to talk about the movie. Mm -hmm. And the whole time I'm learning about the movie, I'm like, this movie's... 
I mean, it's it is and it's not, by the way. So I don't want to take a fan of the movie and make you feel bad or whatever. But this movie is like kind of bullshit <laughs> if you take the source material and also not bullshit because it is like a. I have a very fond memory also of this '80s smokehouse thing. This <laughs> just like '80s in a fireplace on fire, just, just smoke flying at me. You know what I mean? And my face is how it feels a little bit. Yes. There's just so much, the, the special effects are so eighties. That song is so eighties. And there's just something about the tone of that film. It reminds me a little of like Willow. It reminds me, well, there's like a darkness. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of what, well, what is that movie? Crawl. Crawl. Yeah. It's, no, this is like a the- weird disparate bummerness so, about it. Star that Wars is a bummer. swung for the fences. Uh huh. Star Wars swung for the fences and literally just let loose the chain of every baby boomer filmmaker that ever like took like smoked too much pot. Right. And uh, the practical effects industry stepped up and was like having a renaissance and they were capable of all sorts of new interesting things with blue screens and animatronics and puppetry and matte paintings and they were capable of creating all this shit. The boomers were smoking a bunch of weed. Yeah. And like Star Wars made so much money that the studios were like, fuck it. Because they didn't understand why Star Wars worked. Right. They just saw a bunch of fucking Muppets and lasers and were like, I guess that's what people want. And that's how you end up with like Buckaroo Banzai and Kroll and yeah. all this shit. Uh, Willow is kind of what killed it. Yeah. Willow was like the last flop uh-huh. that finally like toned it down and like made the weird world of 80s fantasy nightmare genre fuckery like go yeah. away. What do you even call that genre? Because it's so... I mean, yeah, you're right. It probably didn't come back. Fantasy probably didn't come back in film legit until Lord of the Rings, right? Harry After Potter that. and Lord of the Rings are Harry what Potter too. It was, but Lord of the Rings, I think it was before Potter. It was a one-two punch. Yeah, it was a um, one-two, right? And so right then, that brought it all back. But for a while there, like there was just such a weird uh, dark I, crystal labyrinth. Yeah, it's, it's all. And, and I don't want to say darkness because darkness I like, but there was like a bummerness to mm-hmm. it. Like even that speech with the rock guy, it's not. It's like trying to be kind of cute it's like sort of sad but at the end of the day it's just like a weird it's like what is this fucking weird looking rock man what's he talking about i feel like i'm no, in an opium physical, nightmare like what does it mean to be physically strong and not be strong enough to keep your friends alive right right which is cool but i feel like the way it's or that fucking nihilist turtle just the yeah Malore? what was the, the name turtle. nihilist i know <laughs> There's like Tinky Winky the Snail Rider. I'm yeah. The Night Hob. The, the Snail Rider, like the s- weird snail and the Snail Rider. All of those characters right in the beginning with, that is such a weird scene. Like, like it just, they're all, they all seem to be like, it's like a fever dream. The way they talk to each other, the way everyone moves and reacts to each other. There's the, the pacing of that scene is like, what the fuck is happening right now? I think they were, I mean, that's before the giant rock tricycle comes across. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, that whole scene with the giant rock tricycle. I, so the thing the NeverEnding Story was supposed to do, which like didn't quite work because I think the art direction was actually so strong that even though all these disparate characters uh, were together, like, even though these characters were so disparate and weird, they still felt part of the same universe, which is a testament to the production That's, staff. That is true. That um, is true. But I will give it that. The original intention of these weird characters was that it was supposed to be like a Ready Player One thing. Yes. Where, like, here's this Lewis Carroll-ass motherfucker, yes. and here's this Germanic goblin, and here's this, like, Nordic uh, rock giant. And, and they I, were all supposed to be interacting and in I guess that common. And I guess that didn't really play for me, probably because they... It didn't play for me either. Right? Probably because they 
were actually and a Japanese luck dragon. We're yeah, all, yeah. But through the um, through the work of this Italian guy, Ulderico, yeah, his designs like kind of united everything so that they still kind of belonged in the same world. So like that effect, the idea that Fantasia is this place where all fantasies are real. Yes. Instead of being this like kind of loose conglomeration of different ideas, it still felt like a singular place, which is an accomplishment. Yes. But you lost you lose that effect. Indeed. And it's just and again, this is more less about the world building and more about the weird pacing of the film. Like you just his life, su- Bastion's life, fucking sucks mm-hmm. in a weird way in the beginning with his dad. But like, just the oh, way you his mean dad his talks. dad who makes a orange juice and raw egg smoothie? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Gross. Like, what the fuck is happening? Um, and by the way, again, a lot Son, of this you're stuff, drawing too many horses again. This is a German. They're unicorns. <laughs> this is a German film based off of a German novel. So a lot of the odd feelings, I feel like, in a way, maybe come from a translation um, mm-hmm. situation, vacation. You know, stipulation, it's, you know what I mean? But they're trying to appeal to Americans, so they're shooting in, yes. like, Vancouver, and, like, this kid is in this weird, like, proto-50s, like, like the bullies. You know, it's all very, like, leave it to beavery on top of everything So else. it's like, his life sucks. Then they go into the awesome world. You're like, oh, cool, then they're going to go into this fantasy world. But it's, like, dark, and there's a bummed-out rock guy, and everyone seems bummed out, and then it's like the nothing is taking everything which is a really scary concept for children oh entropy yeah the like, inevitability of death and pure chaos? absence of reality is a fucking creepy concept and you do go to the the fantastical but even that place the place where everybody congregates is sort of a weird but everyone's ivory sad tower, yeah. everyone's bummed out and then the very a bunch first, of weird vaginal flowers of some george o'keefe right flower sculptures there's a moment of like not levity but like light in the darkness with the treyu entering and being like i'm here to do this right immediately canceled out by this bummer swamp scene in which the horse dies Mm -hmm. so it's just i'm sorry i'm sorry you say die but that kind of uh doesn't because like a horse can struggle and like Uh by accident die and you can be like okay but that the horse just stands there and looks at treyu in the eyes like well, I would prefer to die. Right. While well, he screams at the horse. Yeah, the horse commits suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is like just stopping right there. It, it That is so fucking just a No, no, bu- but that don't worry. He finally bummer. makes it to Malorp, Dorpy Doop the turtle. Yeah. And who immediately tells him to go fuck himself. Yeah. And that she doesn't care whether or not she even cares if all of reality dies. Like we couldn't have gone. He couldn't have like succeeded once for a second you know what i mean just to make us be like oh the fact that the horse dies so quickly and you barely knew the horse Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and it's still a bummer like lexi was crying and shit and i'm like i was laughing you know well you know a a white (laughs) horse is like the hero rides in on a white horse uh literally like the buddha rides in on a white horse rama rides in. you know it's it's uh, it's you know uh, nd was definitely working with a lot of Everyone was obsessed with, like, Joseph Campbell Heroes Journey yeah, tropes. Yeah. So, like, they knew what they were doing by choosing a white I horse. I get it, but it's one of those where it's like, he couldn't, have, he couldn't have been in a beautiful place for two seconds. He couldn't have, like, done something that showed how strong of a hero he is for, like, a split second before we just have him lose, lose, <laughs> lose, lose. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then all the characters are, like, 
kind of s- snippy and shitty to each other. Oh, that married couple that he ends up like the, yeah. the scientist and the witch. They're who are just assholes a to each other. Dysfunctional married couple. By the way, I, I love that. With uh, I feel like I always got them confused with like the Billy Crystal Princess Bride. Abs- same characters. Right? It's the same thing, right? And and it's like every fantasy film at that time <laughs> had to. Um, you know, uh, have that element, this old like wizard witch kind of cranky couple in, in their fantasy story. But either way, I don't want it to uh, uh, make it sound too much like I'm talking shit because at the same time, it's like an anomaly. It's more me looking at uh, it's, through it's, a microscope yeah. at like a weird bug and being like, whoa, that bug's so weird. And it's kind of like a bummer, but it's like I can't stop looking at it. Every so yeah, that's the thing is we're railing on it, but we're just like fascinated by yeah. just how different, by how yeah. it just shatters all these expectations and all these familiar tropes that you know a, a children's fantasy movie is supposed to be like a warm blanket, but this thing is rickling and spiky and weird. And we'll keep talking about scenes from it, but I want to take this time to parlay into a little background on the man who brought this bizarrity to us, and I didn't even realize he also made Das Boot. Let's talk I about know, him. Dude, this guy's resume is mind-boggling. Yeah, it's unbelievable, right? Wolfgang Peterson. He was born in Emden, Germany in 1941. Uh, so he also um, was a, a young, young child during some hardships in Germany. Um, if you weren't, you know, all about it, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I hope that uh, nobody is who listens to this show. Uh, he was a director Just of- one poor, like, skinhead <laughs> in his basement being like, Ugh, another day getting fired from work and being banned from social media. Uh, at least I still can listen to my favorite podcast, <laughs> Wizard and the... Oh. <laughs> Um, so he was the director of plays initially in the 1960s at the Hamburg's Ernst Deutsch Theater, a former cinema that is actually Germany's largest privately owned theater. He then attended the Film and Television Academy in Berlin in the late 60s. His first film productions were for German television with um, a popular TV series on a show called uh, Tartat, which I believe means crime scene. His first theatrical film was in 1974 with the psychological thriller One or the Other of Us, which was based on a novel, and then Die Consequence, again based on an autobiography. So you see the pattern here. He likes to adapt. Uh, He likes to take previously made work. That autobiography, by the way, Die Consequence, it's a it's German. I don't know how to make consequence. It's German, German for the consequence. The consequence for the Bart. The um, that was well. No one who speaks German can be an evil man. <laughs> uh, can we talk about the Simpsons all day, um, every day? So uh, the that book, Die Consequence, that is about homosexual love and was considered so radical at the time that it was uh, when it was first broadcast in Germany that the Bavarian network turned off the transmitters shut it down that means it must have been pretty radical by the way because <laughs> Germans will put anything on television <laughs> so uh, then came uh, as you said a movie that I really actually is on my list of movies I really need to see but this isn't an episode about Das Boot so I didn't watch it uh, <laughs> the Das Boot came out in 1982 and it chronicles the experiences of a German submarine crew engaged in the Battle of the Atlantic. Have you seen Das Boot? I mean, I might now after doing the research for this. It but. is on my list. Like it's that it's it's like one of those like Citizen Kane movies that is so fundamental. I feel like to the history of cinema that people still rave about and love. Um, so yeah, yeah. 
Um, it is just an incredibly historic work um, and not a huge financial set success, but a definitely a critical one. And it was nominated for six Academy Awards. It won two for Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay. It Talk was also about the most expensive German movie ever made. At the time. Which, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, it was. Uh, it it And it, man, what a way to put yourself on the map with two Oscar wins. I mean, you are immediately... Under the uh, eyes, under the sexy gaze of Hollywood by that point, they're like, come over here, get away from Germany. You know what I mean? Let's make something good. Let's make something with a dog dragon. <laughs> by the way, Michael Indy hated that Falcor looked like a dog. No, he was hated a weeb. <laughs> yeah. He didn't want a Labrador retriever. I feel like the dog uh, dragon is the most weeby looking thing, arguably, in <laughs> the Netflix But it could have been weebier. <laughs> Could add animators. Ulderico, you son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, uh, Das Boot puts him on the map. Next up is then the Neverending Story. Well, after telling such like a grim kind of claustrophobic tale of war and desperation, he wanted to make a movie that his his uh, you know twelve year old kid could enjoy. And by the way, shout outs to some of his later work. He made In the Line of Fire that. Badass Clint Eastwood, uh, John Malkovich assassination movie that rule. Like, I loved that movie. He made fucking Air Force One. He made fucking Air Force One. He was behind the camera when Harrison Ford uttered his famous words, get off my plane. (laughs) Um, And the lesser uh, revered adaptation of Ender's Game. But still. Wait, I thought he didn't do that. Oh, really? I thought he he passed on that. Oh, no. Did I get that wrong? I hate that it. He was supposed to do Harry Potter 2. He was was supposed to do Harry Potter 2. Uh, not Harry Potter 2, but Harry Potter as well. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, currently he's considering doing a live-action version of the Japanese anime film Paprika, which is interesting. Don't but, you dare fucking touch Paprika. I know, right? Satoshi I'm... Kone will not be muddled the same way you have muddled Indy's work. <laughs> uh, so the script is – the adaptation is co-written by Wolfgang Peterson and Herman Weigel. Uh, Weigel is known for the... Well, you know, they tried to work with ND, but the two did not get along and constantly bickered as they sat at opposing typewriters trying to iterate on each other's drafts. <laughs> and Indy, has he written any screenplays at this time? Uh, is he... Probably not, right? I'm... I don't know. He, and that he, might be part of why he doesn't have a leg up. Also, he's competing with an Oscar award winner in terms of what's going to go into the Oscar award winner's movie. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a bit difficult. Kind of wish he'd... I mean, what would NeverEnding Story look like if they had actually gotten along and collaborated on something? It would be a different... I mean, it would look probably similar. He would have had the same production people. It would have been like the Matrix for babies. It would have been like... the No, I'm saying like the philosophy behind it would have been so much more like coherent. The Matrix. I, maybe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's because they still would have hired the same effects guys. They yeah. still would have had like the, the access to all the vast uh, resources of Studio Bavaria. And you've got to understand, and we'll get more into this later because I don't have it directly in front of my eyeballs right now in my notes, but... Uh, this is at a time too when you just can't straight can't do story shit. Even if you have the, even if you're making the most expensive German movie ever made, a big Hollywood picture, um, there's certain things that you technically just can't do yet because CGI is not a thing. I mean, nowadays you can literally anything, anything you you know described in a in the pages of something you can make. Yeah, right? well, it was uh, two like I, I can't remember which monster it was, but like. There's uh, two monsters in the book that one is like a group of carnivorous wasps. It's like wasps. They form to make a giant spider monster, which is so something you would see in like 
a modern day Marvel movie yes. or like Peter Jackson. CG movie. artists fucking love little things that form together into a right. Big thing. Or even a fucking Transformers movie like yeah. that. I mean, you would just see that all the time. The other one was the Cloud Giants. Mm-hmm. That was the other one they had to cut from the from the book, in which. Um, Falcor fights these cloud giants and they're constantly disappearing or shrinking because of the nothing. Just the kind of shit that would be very tricky to do technically in a production that already has a lot of tricky uh, technical things. So this adaptation ends up being just an adaptation of the first half of the book. But it's also, as we mentioned before, it is not like a true adaptation in any sense. It's, 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 I think we're... And this is probably because no, it is superficially super, but it is. I, I, I'm saying it's not. It, it's it's just. I've, this is what I'm getting at. Nowadays, because of Lord of the Rings and because of Harry Potter, you can do a two parter. You can like sign up for a two parter film mm. thing, make the first movie with the audience walking in knowing it will be the first of a two part thing, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in this sense. They have to take the first half of something, but make it its own thing. And I think that that is why the movie struggles so much to be anything like the book. There's like a behind-the-scenes documentary on YouTube, probably ripped from a Blu-ray release or something, where they talk to uh, Peterson, and um, they talk about how Endy was mad at the ending, where, you know, uh, Bastion just gets to get Falcor in the real world. doesn't happen in the book. And uh, Endy's like, like, what, you want just some, like, Disney ending? And, and so Peterson's like, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. Because <laughs> they were like struggling. They didn't know how to like break the story. They didn't Which know how to end it. funny that he would say that because his movie's such a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That a Disney ending's like weird and jarring to throw in at the end. You know what I mean? Well, even during this era, the Disney made the fucking Black Cauldron. Everything was oh, dark. Everything that's was right. weird. That's right. Uh, I kind of miss it, but I kind of don't. I as I'm glad that future generations just get to like go to sleep at night and don't have to think about this shit until they're like old enough to drink themselves to sleep. The nothing as a kid upset me. Like the concept made me upset and sad. You know what freaked me out even more than the nothing was uh, Gamork, the wolf, the black yeah, wolf thing. Yeah, that thing was, was like, way scary. I fucking love the nothing. Yeah, I'm helping the nothing. Yeah, it was. It was. It was less. The spooky clouds, which were made by uh, shooting colored oils into a vat, a giant vat of water. So that's how you got that, like, goopy, like, swirling effect. It was less that. Because, like, I underst- you understand intellectually that death is a thing. But that, like, there were creatures that, like, would surrender to it and, like, help it. That's what, like, shook me even harder. And this is my other point, because it's like, oh, give it the Disney ending, right? Mm. Or this is my other thought about the differences between the book and the movie. You posited a really great thesis for what the book's about earlier, right? Mm. It's it's uh, ends up being about how, you know, you can't just escape into a fantasy world. Uh, you have to, you know, uh, you have to confront the real world. And, you, you know, you have, like, in order to break, free, you know, in order to, like, live a, a full life and mm. everything, right? Um, what is the thesis of the movie at the end of the day? Um, Nothing sucks and something's good. Uh, books are rad. That's the that's a <laughs> right? big deal. Um, what was his name? Mister Coriander, the bookseller. Yeah, is like um, you know when uh, when Bastion first like runs away from the bullies and finds the bookstore. He's like, get out of here. Nothing here beeps or whistles. You damn kid. <laughs> you have, with your video arcades and your like. First of all, Coriander, 
you do not understand how much worse it gets than fucking Galaga. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, if you even knew. And second of all, that, yeah, I think it was just like, just a feel good message, like kind of a nostalgia trip because the, you know, Bastion's like this nerd that name checks Robinson Caruso uh-huh. and Lord of the Rings and all these, and Tarzan, which are all these books that like the boomer kids read. Uh huh. That was like their Marvel comics, right. and so this like plucky young kids like, no way, those dusty old things were rad, and I love books. So it was like a little more shallow, right. than, than any like major philosophical. Thing. Right, that's the thing, and it's. But what I'm trying to say too is, that's where the movie kind of folds in on itself to me as an adult rewatching it. As a kid, you just take it. You're just like whatever. You yeah. don't think about this shit, right? At least I didn't. I was just like, oh, cool. I want to see more of the flying dog dragon. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, just show me the crazy shit. But uh, this movie introduces these deep psychological concepts, like elements of them, but then just doesn't then just doesn't really do anything with them. So you just kind of walk away feeling bummed out. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say right now, Jake. So let's talk about the casting. Mm. Noah Hathaway is cast as a Treyu. He got his first role at six years old, getting cast in Battlestar Galactica, in 1978, and then he was cast in this. And as we said before, apparently it was difficult to work with. Brian Johnson, the special effects director, said Noah Hathaway was a bit of a pain. It was very difficult for Wolfgang to get anything out of him. This is a child, and also a child that was injured brutally during the making of this film. Kind of reminds me of our Exorcist episode mm-hmm. and the injuries that happened there. He injured uh, himself during the training with the with a horse. A horse fell on him. A horse fell on Broke him. Broke his fucking spine. A horse did the thing that everyone's scared a horse is going to do when you're like first trying to ride it, which is take off with you on its back and uncontrollably go nuts and then it tried to like jump over a thing it couldn't actually jump over tripped and literally like fell back and like on him a child and he has had back problems for the rest of his life because of it he cracked a couple of vertebrae and it delayed filming and by the way you have to know now that we're in the production end of it that's not the first time you're gonna hear the phrase delayed filming uh, he was also injured with that faded Gamork. This is the scare. This would, as a child, as an adult, this would terrify me. <clears throat> but it happened to a child. That terrifying ass robot fucking wolf uh, w- malfunctioned like a, it's a fucking episode of the Twilight Zone and <laughs> clawed his face. And nearly almost, took out his eye. Nearly took his eyeball out. And um, uh, which yeah. is actually ironic because in the book. Uh, Gamork dies from starvation and then his unconscious, like his evil body, just like as a last gasp, rips like, j- claw, like grabs onto Atreyu and traps him. It's actually kind of weird. Um, but so not only that, but think about the uh, Swamp of Sadness. Think about the uh, scene with Artax yeah. in, in the swamp. Uh, that was shot on a soundstage. The temperature was kept incredibly hot in order to keep the uh, the swamp steamy and moist. Interesting. Well, heat is going to be a pervading situation because also, it was also the hottest summer Germany had ever seen in, what was it, uh, 25 years? And uh, they don't usually get that hot in Germany. So there's not a lot of air conditioners. Definitely at the time, there was not a lot going on. So he is waist up in muck, getting thrown around, like getting you know dropped from like heights, just waist deep in muck. For two straight months. Now that yeah, and that was not supposed to take two straight. And, months. and it was it was uh, it was Noah doing it was that was the actor doing almost every stunt. The only exception was when uh, and you can tell because the wig is really puffy and bad when the nothing finally comes to the end of the world and he has to like hang on to the tree horizontally, which was done in a really cool like um, 
the uh, you know where they like fix the camera to the set, then turn the whole set sideways. Right. That Inception trick. That's right. how they did that like sideways wind blow thing. Awesome. Uh, but that was a stunt double. So this kid is working his fucking ass off, and throughout the entirety of every behind the scenes thing, it's just Peterson being like. It was unpleasant working with the boy. It's just <laughs> trash all day. By the way, a good thing to know about Peterson, very similar to Stanley Kubrick, uh, in the sense that he was a perfectionist and would generally get up to around 40 takes for every scene. This is a three-month slated shoot that ended up taking a year. And if you could imagine being a child actor in a situation where you are doing take after take after take to bring up Simpsons again because I love the Simpsons, um, the Fallout Boy. Uh, Jiminy Jillikers. <laughs> Jiminy Jillikers. We did it. We did it already. He's like, well, we have to do it again and again and again and again until we get it right. This, okay, yeah. I'm just going to get into this. Uh, I watched uh, the uh, – some sort of director's commentary. I don't know from which because I ripped it off of a mega torrent site. And the entire time, Peterson keeps talking about the child actors in such a creepy way where, like, he's uh, yeah? just like, uh, yeah, what was the name of uh, Bastion's actor? Like, something Barrett? Uh, Barrett Oliver. Yeah, he's like, Barrett was uh, wonderful. Such a warm, bright child. I loved him like a son. We were, it's, I'm, I'm like almost doing a Herzog because that's all old German man. Um, it's just uh, it's just a delight, just such a beautiful child, just the camera, just loved him. And on top of that, the way he talks about fucking, uh, what's, Tammy Strunch, <laughs> the the childlike uh, empress? Yes, Tamil uh, Stronach. Um, Stronach. Was, was the childlike empress, I hope I'm saying that right. And she was 11 years old, so she had to wear false front teeth because her front teeth had fallen out at So the time. they, like, he was so obsessed with the childlike empress that like they were still casting. They he claims that they saw thousands of children, and then once they finally cast her, because uh, she was like in doing dance in San Francisco, they he brought in like European like fashion makeup artists to make sure she had like extra adult makeup, and like throughout the commentary, all he can fucking talk about is how beautiful this child is. Just being like, it's the, the captivating presence of the child. She is a beauty of uh, otherworldly. I mean, I will I will say this, Jake. All German directors inherently sound creepy when you talk to them about their movies. Okay? It's, it's just real <laughs> weird. It's just very uncomfortable hearing him talk about how he looked all over the world for this beautiful child. The, the perfect child, as if that's like a thing that like anyone would ever think about. And I guess maybe they do think about it, but I sure don't think about well, that sort of thing. Here's here's my one thing that's been like giving me agita is like it's very creepy that he went to those lengths. Very creepy that he talks about her that way. But when she shows up, the movie kicks to 11. Yeah, yeah, the, totally. like, Her, her pres- age. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're right. <laughs> Ew. Um, like, her presence, the way, like, when she looks into the camera and cries to Bastion, to the viewer, yeah. like, shattering the reality of everything that we've watched, it's, it's cool. a fucking mind blow. It's cool. And I don't know if, like, another, like, if that actor wasn't as commanding, wasn't as... And if the weird German director wasn't as captivated by her image. And it's so hard to be a good actor at the age of 11. Like, it's just so difficult to be that captivating at 11. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which, again, is something you do hear about in other um, things, you know, like we talked about with Home Alone. Uh, In that episode, like, you know, it's you end up seeing a lot of kids a lot of those times just because 
so there's so many of them are awful <laughs> you know so you have to see like triple the amount you normally would but you're right that does sound creepy also uh, a little bit more about barrett oliver um he uh his first role was as jimmy the kid in the incredible hulk tv show mm-hmm. which is pretty fun um and he ended up doing a little bit of work afterwards you might remember him from uh tim burton's short film frankenweenie and uh but later he ended up uh Retiring from acting in 1989 to become a photographer whose work has been displayed in museums and even used in films. He looks real weird now. He yeah, is like a mountain. He's like a just a filthy, like a crust yes. punk mountain man right they now. They all look like that, those child actors, though, I feel like, that don't, you know, um, die before they become adults. <laughs> it's a bit of a thing that happens. Tammy looks like a middle aged Jewish woman, as God intended. <laughs> So, um, yes, as we said, uh, most of the film was shot in Bavaria Studios in Munich. This is a studio that has a, a, a wild reputation in the sense that so many people have shot things there, have uh, so many amazing things have been made there. It was founded in 1919. It's where Alfred Hitchcock made his very first film, The Pleasure Garden. Paths of Glory was filmed there. The Great Escape, The Sound of Music, all uh, shot scenes there. Um, and if you visit, I don't know if you can actually sit in it, but the picture that I always see is two fans like mm-hmm. sitting on Falcor. No, they have. It's like a Universal you Studios can sit on thing. It? You okay, can sit cool. on Falcor, but it's an action. And they'll like film the you behind prop. a green screen, and you get to go like, yeah. That's that's so awesome. It's like an actual the actual movie prop, though I believe. No, made out, that made thing out of must airplane have been parts. Like, yeah, that thing must have fallen apart by now. Um, uh, and that then, latex like rots. It's yeah. like not. And as you mentioned before, the street scenes were mentioned were shot in Vancouver. So yeah, shooting sounded brutal, very hot. Literally, the model for the ivory tower melted. It was so hot, and they were like, "Uh, I think we got to call it a day because <laughs> the fucking prop melted." Uh, and they had to shoot shut down shooting multiple times for the heat. Again, delay, delay, delay. It just kept happening to these people. Um, the budget inflated to up to $27 million, which would be $65 million today, which, of course, then makes it surpassing Das Boot as the most expensive German film ever made and still is, correct? I, I actually didn't take the – I didn't do the diligence to look that I'm up. I'm pretty sure it's still the most expensive German film ever made. So when it was came time to release it internationally, Peterson did a couple of things um, to kind of adapt it for an even broader audience. Uh The first is he switched up the soundtrack. He brought in uh, Giorgio Moroder, who we know for literally every synth soundtrack you've ever heard from the (laughs) 80s. Yes, he was dubbed the father of disco. Super Italian dude. He brings in Keith Forsey as well for the lyrics. And um, it's performed by the former lead singer of a band called Kajagoogoo. You too. Sha, sha. Hush, hush. Oh, is that what they made? Christopher uh, Christopher Shush, Hamill, Shush. along with Beth Anderson, to sing it. Um, let's hear a little bit of it right now. All right, that's enough nostalgia. If you can can bring up the video, like the just the man's hair is a (laughs) true like just 
like beyond parody of the 80s. Giorgio Moroder? No, no, no. Tamil, Hamill, whatever his name oh, is. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, Giorgio Moroder, uh, it actually is kind of an amazing synth, like, it's an amazing amalgamation of the traditional fantasy like movie score from the German cut with these extra layers of like menacing synths yeah, on top they of that. added really... like techno pop to it, um, which is strange. And and th- by the way, there is a German cut of the film and a uh, international cut of the film, and it's so different. The, the international. So another thing he did was he, uh, you know, was very nervous, and he took the film to his close friend. Steven Spielberg. Oh shit! He got Steven Spielberg, y'all. Uh, they send him a German cut, uh, and in order for him to put that America on it, just just shoot America all over it. What he did was he moved some scenes around. He ended up cutting some, certain scenes for profanity, uh, and uh, all this and 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 other scenes as well that he just felt like wouldn't it's about work. Seven for, minutes are yes. are cut from the German. Seven minutes, which are from cut. a ninety-minute movie is like a pretty substantial. Yeah, that's a pretty big amount of cutting it down. Um, and uh, I wonder yeah. if it's Steven Spielberg who did like that really harsh smash cut uh, when it's the uh, childlike Empress is holding the grain of sand and explaining the wishing to like Bastion. It's like. So what will you wish for? And like before you can even think, it smashes straight to yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if that's like that was Spielberg because that feels very like yes, punchy. yes. Uh, there are other moments like when he does when he gets shot, uh, and I know it's probably more just because of the way the special effects are. The again pacing is so weird in this movie. Like when he gets sneezed off of the <laughs> tree, like just the way that feels. It's so it's so like. Uh, frenetic and weird. It's like so slow, and then all of a sudden he just like shoots off the tree, and it's like, Ugh! and then it sort of slows down again. I don't know how to describe it, but it just feels like '80s special effects in a big way. Steven Spielberg was not uh, paid for his work, but what he did receive was the original prop for the Arin, which yes. is the double Ouroboros um, amulet that in the book has powers, and in the movie just is kind of there. For, yeah, it looks cool. It was gifted, uh, and it stays in a glass case in his office. Also, I wanted to throw out there too that in the early that early like Fantasia scene, um, or I'm sorry, uh, what's the name of it? The Ivory Tower. When uh, yeah. the guy with the weird fit on his head is addressing the uh, gathered fantasy creatures. There's actually a slew of Easter egg characters in there because, of course, this is this is what I needed to see more specifically actually like i wish that they were allowed to show these characters close up yeah uh because then i would have gotten it probably right yes because it's more of an easter egg in here but you have uh et chewbacca ewoks yoda c-3po gumby and mickey mouse all visible in that scene but way from afar so the i didn't even know that existed and yeah it's just it's kind of just a uh establishing shot they don't really like and again that is what they were going for. And like you said, it's like a ready player one thing that never really translated because we never actually saw the copywritten characters in actual detail. You'd have to be like way into it or Wikipedia would have had to have existed. You had to be one of those weirdos that owned like Japanese, like medium definition laser discs to actually like pause it and find those guys. Exactly. Exactly. Also, I will say about uh, going back to the score too. I forgot to mention the score. The original score is composed by Klaus Doldinger from the German jazz group passport. He's a saxophonist in that group. He also scored Das Boot. 
And he also did a dirty German comedy film called The Naughty Cheerleader uh, as well. And um, one, one year after The Naughty Cheerleader came out, scored by Klaus Doldinger, he ended up forming Passport, a jazz fusion group that has been very successful. Their most recent album was released in 2016. 2016, And they got together again one year after he scored The Naughty Cheerleader, <laughs> the famous uh, German comedy. Um, so the movie comes out, and it is a big success. It got middling reviews from critics, but it ended up doing very well at the box office. But was, not like amazing. Not like amazing for how much it cost. Not like a ama- hundred million worldwide off of twenty-seven million. This is a movie that definitely like found its life in the VHS era. Yeah, and I think another and we've talked about this before. Yeah, what a blockbuster movie! And yeah, I mean that in the sense of the old. Uh, by the way, there was a retail chain uh, where you could rent <laughs> videos. My bones—they're disintegrating. <laughs> Stop! Stop! Um, uh, called Blockbuster. I worked there and was shot at there. Wait, and, really? Yeah, I've told you've you never, this story. You, oh, I've told this story a million times. Okay. Yeah, a guy came in to rob a Blockbuster, which I don't know why you would pick a Blockbuster. I just get them like, like good sexy movies. It just seems like there are so many other places. Oh my god! One time I rented like one of those sexy movies, and when you do that, like when you're working there, you have to do it from your manager. I still am like embarrassed wow. at that moment to this day. Yeah, that's impressive. I was so horny. That I was willing to embarrass myself in front of my manager to rent a very bad softcore pornography film. Holden, we've all been that horny. Horniness is a natural state of being. And though we carry that shame with us, it's the weird embarrassed orgasms that'll last us forever. There you go. But the movie does well. Well enough to get a sequel. I don't know if I have too much more to say about the first movie as we wrap things up talking about the horrible sequel. That if you want to talk about just a weird bummer... Uh, and I know people are probably gonna get mad at me and be like, "I love the sequel." And yeah, I know people you know. like I know all I know some like girl women of our age definitely had like a crush on wh- whoever that kid was who like well died. yeah who yeah committed suicide. I didn't really get into that too much, but he hung himself. Branson, um, Jonathan. Branson. Yeah, he was in, but he was in other stuff too. He was um. I wanted to pull him up. I just don't want to bum everybody out talking about that story, Jake. Oh, this is a bummer episode. This is a bummer episode. Sorry about your bummer on a fucking <laughs> Thursday afternoon or whenever you watch listen to this. So, anyways, Never Ending Story 2, the next chapter. It's um, directed by George T. Miller. He's a Scottish-Australian director and producer for television and film, making a lot of stuff for Australia, as well as the dog and whale friendship movie, Zeus and Roxanne, starring Steve Gutenberg and Kathleen Quinlan. Again, Wait, I'm this re- isn't the Mad Max George Miller? No, I'm going to... Uh, no, this is not the Mad <laughs> Max George Miller. And again, I'm going to repeat the last sentence. George T. Miller made a dog and whale friendship movie called Zeus and Roxanne. Starring Steve Gutenberg and Kathleen Quinlan. Uh, <laughs> I think that was around the time that Free Willy was a huge thing. Sounds very Free And, Willy. like, they were like, just throw a fucking killer whale in it. Everybody fuck watch that piece of shit-ass <laughs> movie. So, anyways, um, this movie is written by Karen Howard, who also wrote the third film, which I will talk about even more briefly. Uh, this took uh, 14 drafts, apparently, to make because it started off just with a wacky producer with a dream. Producer Dieter Geisler always wanted to make it a trilogy because 
Um, this is his bullshit reason. The book was just too rich to leave at one film. Uh, the real reason was cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. That's the sound money makes. We make uh, movies based off of popular franchises. Uh, production was largely delayed because of End's lawsuit against Geisler because he sued the pants off of them trying to get his property back, trying to not have signed away all of his uh, creative rights for his work to for them to just piss and shit all over it with a weird bird man <laughs> and a fucking... Don't forget Triface. Remember Triface? The worst. It was like taking fantasy and all the more uncomfortable elements of it and just having those. Uh, so the uh, so a lot of the, you know, none of the original cast, none of the, like, all, all this stuff was changed. Uh, the only person who did stick around was a guy named Rolf Zetbauer. Zichitbauer, who actually worked on one, two, and three, and he was the uh, he did the practical design and the sets, and so like even though a lot of it is different and deviated and changed and weird, that same unease, that same like weird Euro jank, yeah, threatening, unappealing fantasy world stayed intact. Do you are you sure it's not Ludwig Engerer? There could be another guy. I'm sorry. Uh, He was the conceptual artist who worked with... um, Essentially, he worked with uh, Geisler. There was more than one or two, yeah. Either way, he he worked with Geisler um, before a director was attached to try to essentially, like, how do we pump out this special effects heavy movie the cheapest we can pump it out before we get a director involved? Um, Geisler said... Then they brought in a director, and he said because... um, Effects heavy productions burn a director out real fast when they're in on a picture from the earliest pre-production stages. What I wanted was for the director to come in fresh and not already worn out and to be able to put his ideas on an already solid structure. So the perfect way to use a director is to have them come in like halfway through production. Mm. That's a really great use of a director. The person whose singular (laughs) vision is supposed to make something really good. Let's bring him in like halfway in um so they ended up you know they were working on a tighter budget the first and second unit filmed on the same stage at the same time and they you know and again and there's so many little like oh this is how they also cut a corner they brought the director in later they also they really wanted to get the most time they could out of the child actors but uh they had all those pesky laws they had to work around so they would only rehearse scenes once before filming them oh Uh, brilliant Great, right? Perfect, right? That's all you got to do. Just rehearse it once. Uh, that movie uh, is weird and upsetting, and the only way that like bad kids' movies can be weird and upsetting. Neverending Story 3, Escape from Fantasia, however, was um, uh, also upsetting. So I don't know why I said however there. It's both upsetting. Uh, it's, it's as upsetting as Neverending Story 2. I, I don't actually know if it's a bummer movie per se. I, I really, you, you were like, oh, uh, what's his name's in it? Um, Jack Black. Oh, Jack Black plays the bully. And it's like, it's, it's, he's like, he's having fun. Yeah. He's having fun. It's, and it's him doing very Jack Black shit. That's great. It feels very out of place. Uh, you know, so much time had passed since the first one. Yeah, that, this like, is 94, by the way, when Neverending Story 3 so came out. So Neverending Story 3 has, like, a lot of attitude and pop culture references. I think the Rockbiter's kid, like, sings a weird version of Born to be Wild. <laughs> it's, like, very, yeah. It's directed by Peter McDonald, who made Rambo 3 and Mo Money. And Variety says this about Neverending Story 3. 
The Neverending Story lives up to its title in the worst way possible. With this third outing, a charmless, desperate reworking of the franchise that might just as well be subtitled Bastion Goes to High School, uh, which I think is hilarious. So anyways, uh, I think that pretty much covers it. What a strange, long, strange trip this movie is and this work is. And it does make me want to go and read the book. And, dude, definitely, if you haven't seen this movie since childhood, put that on, man. It's only 90 it's, minutes. It's, it's way shorter than you remember. And it's weird, man, in a way that um, I think is interesting and compelling. And they don't necessarily make anymore and may never be made again, uh, for better or for worse. All right. Uh, thank you again for listening. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. You can follow me on twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorshope. You can follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung. And if you uh, feel like being entertained, maybe check out dropout.tv. Yeah. It's a platform run by College Humor that has comics and a little show called Cartoon Hell on it. And uh, hey, honestly, I've been enjoying a lot of the episodes we've been doing lately. I've had a ton of fun uh, going to the history of Mortal Kombat this week was a ton of fun if there's an episode or a topic that like you know a friend of yours or someone you know would like really appreciate maybe send them send them a little linky poo uh let the let the whiz brew army grow strong grow vast grow powerful there you go thank you and until next time hey guys keep on whizzing and never stop bruising This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.